there's still a youngster in here. That's wonderful. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to the 21st century. It wasn't obvious while it was happening, but it is now. And what happened was this. The certainties of belief and disbelief that people held began to lose their certainty and their power. Modes of practice within and outside of organized religion, practice became more important than creeds and more diverse than in the past. And spirituality became as important as religion. Spirituality became a very large and important category in describing how people live in the world and how they identify themselves. Peter van der Veer, a Dutch historian, points out that spirituality became the place where people of very different worldviews could talk to each other. So within and outside of organized religion, there became more and more widespread practices, ways of doing things. Baptists such as Harvey Cox, whose words provided the reading this morning, started doing yoga and meditation. In fact, in a class I had with him, Harvey Cox once described his first adventure with Buddhist sitting meditation, where he sat and he sat, and he said, is that all there is? And the teacher said, yes. He said, but I'm bored. And the teacher said, that's the point. And of course, Baptists, like Unitarians and Universalists, have preaching at the center of their practice, so sitting around being quiet is not our style or theirs. And people have come to say things like, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And some people respond by saying, well, what does that mean? Is spir being spiritual just being watered down religion? Or as one speaker at the ministry days before General Assembly this year put it, saying spiritual is not enough. But that doesn't do justice to what spirituality has become in this time. You see, there's an old meaning of spirituality as a kind of practice within organized religion. Spirituality is the focal point of cloistered orders and solemn monks and the religious communities of sisters focused on prayer. Spirituality was about growing their personal lives of prayer and service within organized religion. But what has happened is it has gone outside of organized religion and now overlaps with it. And saying we're spiritual but not religious and saying that's not good enough doesn't do justice either to spirituality or to religion. Spirituality is not just watered down religion. It's a way of engaging in the world that gets beyond the boundaries of belief, practice.
practice and denominational identity. Well, Harvey Koch suggests that we are moving into a new age of the spirit in his book, The Future of Faith. And being a good Baptist, he looks at the history of Christianity. Of course, I would add that good Baptist is married to a Jewish woman and his youngest child is Jewish. But he talks about Christianity as having three ages in its history. First, the age of faith which was marked by a deep-seated confidence in the followers of Jesus and the teachings they'd heard from him or from those who'd known him or through the centuries for those who had known those who'd known him. This is the first few centuries of Christianity before creeds solidified churches and structures and belief became more important. Where faith was lively, full of awe and wonder and not constrained by rigid practices and dogmas imposed from the top down. But the age of faith ended with the beginning of the age of belief, which came about when Christianity became organized from the top down, where creeds became dominant. You know, they had all those church councils in the fourth century whose main role is to ally Christianity with the empire so they'd be mutually enforcing powers. But that meant making Christianity uniform. And so the creeds became important. And that's when the Unitarians and the Universalists who'd existed from the early days of Christianity got pushed out or killed or whatever. The Council of Nicaea imposed a very strict rule about the nature of Jesus, imposed the Trinity that Jesus is divine. And not only were Unitarians and Universalists kept out, and those that existed from the early days, not everyone always believed that Jesus was God. Not everyone always believed that some people would be damned and some saved. But other very interesting sects got pushed out, such as the Nestorian Christians. Nestorians are neither Unitarian nor Trinitarian. They're kind of duotarian. They believe that God has two natures. The Unitarians believe God had one. The Trinitarians that God had three. The duotarians believe that God had two natures. But the interesting thing about them is that they never joined mainstream Christianity with its creeds, and they exist to this day in northern Africa. As an independent form of Christianity does not conform to the Trinitarian dogmas. There are only a few hundred thousand of them, but they've survived for two millennia. Survived efforts to enforce uniformity, to make one set of beliefs dominant. Well, for much of the history since the fourth century, We've lived in an age of belief, where what you believed was very important. That was normative, correct belief. You found that in Catholicism, in various forms of Protestantism, and even among the dissenters. You know, Unitarians had catechisms too. But what has happened in the last two centuries or so is that belief has become less important. Well, don't tell that to people who say you have to believe exactly the same thing as they do. But in the world as a whole, belief has become less important. And there has been, in Harvey Cox's view, a rebirth of interest in the Holy Spirit. And you certainly see that in much of Protestant Christianity, that the idea that the Spirit moves among, through, and around the world and through the people 
but there's also a broader sense of spirit, not the dogma of the Holy Spirit of Christianity, but a sense of spirit in that sense of spirituality as some place where people of various faiths talk to each other and meet with each other and work with each other, recognizing that each holds on to a belief about a higher reality, a more overarching reality, that may be different from his or her own. But they meet in this realm and often engage in each other's spiritual practices of prayer, of meditation, of service. Now, I find it hard to give a, an ironclad definition to this kind of spirituality. I think it is something we are still learning about. And Harvey Cox, who is much a, an activist for justice as a theologian, is concerned that a spirituality that is too loosely organized won't do the work of social justice in the world which is so important to so many of us. And I like what Peter van der Veer said, that spirituality is a vague term adopted precisely to make peaceful communication possible between different conceptual universes. Well, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an academic, so he says big words like that. But he traces the history of how the concept of a universal spirituality developed out of the interaction between liberal Christians from, the, from Great Britain, who for the most part were Unitarians, and high caste Hindus in India, who were also fairly liberal, members of Brahmo Samaj and other reform movements. And how in speaking with each other and getting to know each other from both sides sought to find a kind of universal spirituality that would it not encompass all of their practices, provide a common meeting ground for them. And that is much of what happened in the 19th century in many places and ways. You know, we, we study history in school, we learn about wars and politicians and governments and economic systems, and rarely look at what's happening in the culture and in religious practice. And yet, during the 1800s and the 1900s, practitioners of Eastern religions as well as Christianity and some Western religions became open to intercommunication and interaction. And Unitarians had a big part in that, not just as being part of the British Empire and its work, and its work, work conquest of Asia and rule and exploitation, but also in the interactions between very different faith traditions and cultures. But one thing to remember is that both Unitarianism and Universalism were products of that age of belief. There was a difference between Unitarians and Universalists on the one hand and the bulk of Christians on the other. Unitarians were Christians who believed that only God the Creator, the Father, was divine and that Jesus was a human being, and the Holy Spirit was just a way of talking about God the Creator. And Universalists believed that God's love was so great that no soul would be left out. So these were important matters of belief, and they argued vociferously with other people of Christian origins about these meanings, these beliefs, and what were right and what were wrong. 
So it was an argument about belief that gave birth to these independent movements, a product of the age of belief. Belief was all important. But in the 1800s, Unitarians in particular helped the move towards the age of the spirit. Ralph Waldo Emerson, in his famous speech to the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School, said, preach spirit first, and then preach spirit, then preach spirit again. And spirit to him was something beyond, you know, the anthropomorphic, the human-looking God of the Christianity in which he was raised, the Unitarian Christianity. It was something broader and deeper and less specific and more overarching. And his fellow transcendentalists looked to nature for spirit, looked to philosophy for spirit, indeed looked to other religions for spirit. As works of Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism became available in English, they read them and studied them, referred to the concepts of Maya and other concepts from those traditions and sought to find a way to broaden their spirits and thus began to create this broader category of spirituality. And in the late 1800s, Unitarians led the way for religions actually to meet. The World Parliament of Religions, first held in Chicago in 1893, was organized by Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Unitarian minister. And for those of you interested in architecture, Frank Lloyd Wright's uncle. And Jenkin Lloyd-Jones had a great and deep interest in other religions than his own liberal Christianity. And another leader in organizing a conference was a female universalist minister named Phoebe Hannaford, who also helped bring together this worldwide gathering of Christians, both liberal and conservative, and Catholic and Protestant, of people from India, of various paths that Westerners label overall as Buddhism, uh, as Hinduism, of Buddhists. Even some Muslims were invited, though they were not well known to English-speaking peoples at that point. And they met in Chicago for several weeks. And several more of these world parliaments have been held since. And to speak to each other, they looked for that common ground, that overarching spirituality where they could talk to each other while not abandoning their own beliefs but setting them aside long enough to interact with each other. In the first half of the 20th century, the Unitarian minister John Haynes Holmes promoted many ideas, first of Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian poet and Nobel Prize winner, and then of Mohandas Gandhi whom Holmes became very close to over the years and brought teachings from Eastern traditions into the traditional Unitarian Church of the Messiah, which then became the Community Church of New York. And the Universalist Clarence Russell Skinner dabbled a bit in non-Western religions, but focused in on this one important point that gets repeated, though rarely without attribution to him. That belief is one thing and faith is another. Belief is agreeing with a set of ideas. Faith is engaging in the world with confidence, enthusiasm, awe, and wonder. Or to simplify it, beliefs are what you hold. Faith is what you do in response to them and to the world. 
how you live, how you act. But even outside of organized religion in the 20, early 20th century, artists started looking for ways of the spirit outside of the religion in which they'd been raised. The modernist painter Vasily Kandinsky even wrote essays about spirit in painting. And later the Beats and other avatars of spirituality broke out of the bounds of organized religion and, and both dabbled and dove deeply, creating a realm of spirituality that didn't fit the categories of this faith, that dogma, this denomination. So to the question, are we living in a new age of the spirit? I do think we are in that it began in the 19th century with various sorts of forces, both political and religious, interacting, cultural, economic, and that it began to find shape, true shape in the latter decades of the 20th century, a period when we talked a lot about new age and that sort of thing, the age of Aquarius, and yet in that time, really deep interaction went from the academics and the leaders to local communities for Christian churches having yoga classes and local clergy councils expanded beyond first from you know, Protestant and Catholic to Protestant and Catholic and Jew and then Protestant and Catholic and Jew and Muslim and Hindu and Sikh to where people were willing to begin to sit respectfully with each other and learn about each other and not try to convert each other, but just understand each other. And where that happens, that's where spirituality is. So yes, it's there in interfaith and multi-faith work and in bottom-up practices, both inside and outside of organized religion. And also in progressive religious movements where persons raised in a tradition may not leave that tradition, but have a critical relationship with it and work with people of other faiths. Yeah, I got my doctorate at a Christian seminary whose president is a Pentecostal Christian. And under his leadership, the first two Muslim women to get doctorates from Christian seminaries earned those doctorates. They were in my class there. Talk about an amazing place of finding that spirituality where one can bring one's own particular faith and not object to, reject, or argue with the faiths of others. That's the new age of the spirit. But it's not just in seminaries or academic settings, it's in communities. I went to a building dedication about 25 years ago, new affordable housing and re reclaimed abandoned buildings on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and there were Yoruba prayers to dedicate it. Though the board president of the group that had done the housing was a Catholic priest. There is a new age of the spirit, and it's bottom-up, and it's intersecting, and it's in places where people are willing to put aside their differences. Can it be a place where social justice is done? I've suggested a couple of ways already where people can meet. But there's one more point I want to make today about the spiritual age in which we live, and that is that if we're seeking truth, truth is not an absolute outside of us. The truth is relational and changing. 
And this unnerves people who come out of the age of belief and even out of the Enlightenment. Because we're convinced that there absolutely has to be some absolute truth somewhere, and we're on the best path, best path to find it, even if we haven't found it yet. That's always been sort of the uh, between-the-lines message of Unitarianism. Yes, we're open to revelation from all sources, but we've got the best path there to get there. And eventually we'll find it through the scientific method. But Robert P. Jones, in a book called Progressive and Religious, talks about how when people of different faiths get together, even people who stand within their own denominations but are critical of it, truth becomes relational rather than absolute. Truth is found in experience rather than logical propositions. Truth is found in the experience of living with others, of interacting with others, and acting together for justice. That is, truth is internal to the particular community, not external to the individual. So if you are part of a religious community, your truth is internal to that community. It's not outside of it. It's in the relationships and the work you do together. And then that truth is expanded when you work with people of other religious communities. And the truth is actually what you live. That faith in that sense of faith as opposed to belief as propositions. That becomes your true religion. And there's always humility in discerning truth in such a, such a setting. Even when one is confident of what one has known, one maintains a bit of humility because maybe you could be proven wrong, especially in those relationships, especially when working with others. And I know a lot of you have some interfaith experience, some work with people of other faiths. You know what I'm talking about, about how difficult that can be at times, how careful you have to be, but also how brave you have to be, humble and willing to take risks at the same time. But ultimately, that's because being communi in community is more important than being right. A hard lesson for many Unitarian Universalists to learn. So are we living in a new age of the spirit? A new age of excitement, faith, and awe? I certainly hope so. And it's certainly been my experience that this is so. Not everywhere, not with all people, certainly. But... A great deal. Yeah, I had uh, the opportunity of leading one of the multi-faith services at Occupy Wall Street two years ago. And the person organizing that was, was a Baptist. His name was Eric. He was a student at Union Theological Seminary and a student minister at one of the liberal Protestant churches in New York City. And I rather carelessly said, you know, I'm probably one of the few humanists around who trusts the movings of the Holy Spirit, which is a terrible theological contradiction. And Eric wanted me to explain it and realize that I was tottering on a dangerous boundary between belief and metaphor and that he was on the side of belief with the Holy Spirit, and I was on the side of metaphor. And this is going to take a while to sort out. I'm a little more careful about saying things like that, both to evangelical Christians and to humanists, because both tend to be people of strong beliefs. 
But I do believe we are li living in an exciting, faithful, awe-filled, optimistic time in spite of rather dreadful things going on in the world. But that, if we are going to address these rather dreadful things that are going on in the world, it's going to be precisely because we find that realm of the Spirit and work there. We're totally incongruent belief systems and practices can find a way to talk to each other. So on the way to the 21st century, dogmatisms of the left and the right, whether they were religious or political, started losing power. And how we define spirit has become less important than our being open to something we call spirit and living it. And I'd say finally there needs to be an age of the spirit that nurtures souls across the faith spectrum because we live in such a complicated and mobile world that we can't avoid people who are different from us. We can't live in isolation. We must live in community with people who are different culturally, who are di from different ethnic backgrounds, who are different religious backgrounds. We need to live together. And we will live together if we find that realm of the spirit where all can feel at least a bit at comfort with others and open to others and able to speak across great differences with others. Yes, we're entering a new age of the spirit. We're in it. But it needs to grow. It needs to become more full. It is beginning. It has been beginning for two centuries. And one of the things I find most exciting and hopeful is that we, who are living in the 21st century, are giving it its shape. And that, I believe, is the framework in which we do our work together as a congregation. Amen.